and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Our word from Scripture comes from Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking to those who would follow after him. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes away what is yours, do not ask for it back again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back again. Instead, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as God is merciful. That is the word of God, and it is for us, the people of God, we say, thanks be to God. Today I want to talk for a few minutes about one of the most spiritually important questions of all. Can you spare some change? You might have heard variations on that question. Money for food? Sometimes it's a petition. Please, anything will help. The person asking you that question might be white, they might be black, they might be young, they might be old, they could be of any gender. But the question is always asked of you when you're in the middle of doing something else, almost by definition, right? Which is exactly why it's so deeply spiritual. You're walking to work, you're going to get the groceries, you're on a date at the square, And someone interrupts, someone has the gall to interrupt your life with this imposition. I bring it up today because, friends, it's happening more and more here on the campus of our church. 
When we were in conversation with the folks at the Free 99 fridge about whether to put that fridge out here on our campus, Ms. Letitia Springer, who's the organizer of the Free 99 movement, said, uh, Reverend Lewicki, you know that this fridge is going to bring unhoused people to your church. Are you okay with that? That was her question. I wish I could have introduced her to all of you in that moment. I said, of course it's okay with us. That is what we are here for. Did I answer correctly on your behalf? Okay, well now they're here, right? By they, I mean uh, someone out on the steps this morning, maybe someone out in the garden during the week. These are our neighbors, and they are unhoused, and they are unkempt sometimes. Sometimes they are unwell, and sometimes they ask you for money. Now, every one of you knows... I think, that Jesus had a thing or two to say about what we should do when we are asked to give things away. Should I remind you of a couple of the texts? Let's go ahead and remind you of a couple of the texts. Uh, from Matthew's Gospel, if anyone wants to take your shirt, give your coat, too. Uh, that translation of that actually means more like give away your underwear. Like, go, like be naked for the sake of someone else. It's an awesome text. Uh, Jesus later on says, uh, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile willingly. That's about being conscripted by the Roman Empire. Later on in Matthew, when the disciples ask, Lord, when did we take care of you? Jesus will say, I was the person who was hungry and you fed me. I was the person who was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was the stranger and you welcomed me, etc., etc. And here in Luke, Jesus says quite directly and rather unambiguously, give to everyone who asks of you. Friends, there could hardly be a clearer teaching in the New Testament than we are to give things away for those who need them more than we do. Amen? That was a very tepid amen. <laughs> It's a clear teaching. Why then, when we find ourselves being asked for change or for something else, why are we racked with uncertainty and quibbling and doubt? All right, let's talk honestly about this experience of being asked for money, and let's talk about it as a spiritual experience, which is what it is. Let's find out what God is doing in these encounters together this morning. I want to begin by naming a few of the obstacles that come up, and I know they come up because they've come up for me, a few of the obstacles that we face in these kinds of situations. The first obstacle you may face is revulsion. It's true, right? All of us have these purity alarms that are kind of wired into our being. We see someone that we think is not clean, and all these alarms start going off that say, stay away from that person, they are not clean. Well, the truth is, when you live with no access to a bathroom, no access to regular hygiene or a change of clothes, you are going to smell. You might have soiled yourself. Your teeth and your hair and your hands and your feet are all going to be in rough shape. That's just the truth. But we can also remember a story that Jesus told about two men who were walking down a road and saw someone bleeding out over on the side of the road. And for the sake of purity, what did they do? They, yeah, they walked away on the other side of the road. And was Jesus happy about that? 
Not so much, right? It was the Samaritan who wasn't worried about purity who came close enough to see the man's wounds and began to give care. Jesus says he was the one who showed mercy. In order to see the beloved child of God who is plainly in front of us, we have to be willing to ignore our purity alarms. Purity is not from God, so get over it. That's number one. The second thing that happens when someone asks us for something, something we might feel, is a little bit of fear, right? A little bit of fear. You may be by yourself. You may feel vulnerable. We always have to be aware of risks that are around us, and sometimes another individual does pose a risk. But I want to say to you, the idea that unhoused people pose a risk to you is at the very least exaggerated. Assaults by unhoused people are very rare. The honest truth is that poor and unhoused folk have a lot more to fear from you than you do from them. Homeless folks are assaulted every day. They are demeaned, spit on, kicked threatened with weapons and subject to imprisonment by the police for the crime of not having any money. They always have more to fear from you than you have to fear from them. Yet many of us, I think, because I count myself among this group, many of us continue to feel a sense of fear when we are close to unhoused people. Why? My sense is that our fear of beggars is more likely about us than about them because I recognize on some level that I have something that they need, right? We recognize intuitively that there's an imbalance in our relationship and we are afraid on some level that they want what we have. That's an understandable fear, but it's not good. I love 1 John, which says perfect love is what casts out fear. I think that there is a moment at the very beginning of any one of these encounters that we have with an unhoused person where we can either give in to that instinctual fear or we can choose to let love cast out fear. I think if you look at any other human being with love, I believe that it preemptively establishes a foundation for mutual care and concern in that relationship. Even if you have been strangers to each other, I think the way you look at people matters. I think the gaze of love and concern also establishes, paradoxically perhaps, but a healthy boundary of respect. Don't be afraid. Jesus said that once or twice, I think. The third thing we sometimes experience, after we experience revulsion and fear, the third thing we sometimes experience when someone asks us for money is anger. Anyone ever been angry when someone asked you for money? Yeah, thank you, please, all the time. You're walking along, just living your life when you get interrupted. Nobody likes getting interrupted, right? Especially when you're in a hurry or doing something that feels more important. But I think, and this is again based on my own self-reflection, that it's not the interruption that causes us to be angry. The anger, I think, 
comes because this person is drawing you into a morally precarious position against your will. That person who's asking you for something is putting a moral claim upon you. They're pointing out the imbalance between the two of you. You have what you need, probably more than you actually need, and they do not. And they're asking you to address that basic fact. So all of a sudden, you're in a position where you can't just ignore what is easier and more comfortable to ignore. You're on the spot now. And Jesus is watching, right? That's why I think some of us get angry. Have you noticed how much anger there is in our culture directed at people who are unhoused? It's crazy. It's why so many people are out to criminalize homelessness, make sleeping outside a crime, or uh, make asking for money a crime, or make sitting on a public bench a crime. In the latest Georgia legislative session, I'm not sure if you were paying attention, SB 535 named the Reducing Street Homelessness Act. Anybody pay attention to that one? Wow, let me tell you about it. It was basically a bill written by a bunch of suburban legislators who got really uncomfortable coming down to the Capitol and seeing all the homeless people. Their solution was to round up homeless people and put them in camps. I'm not kidding. That's exactly the solution that they offered. And what's more, the bill, would it have passed, would have stripped state funding from cities that would not round up all their homeless people and put them in camps. That's anger. That's a deep kind of anger against folks who are deeply vulnerable. It turns out that many of us actually hate the visible presence of people who are unhoused because we know they have a legitimate moral claim on us. We'd rather put them in prison or in a camp than find a way to help. The last reaction that I want to call out, because I don't think it's very helpful, is helplessness. And the truth is, when some of us look at a, somebody who is experiencing a lack of housing, we look at somebody who's living on the street, we drive down Ponce or we drive down Peachtree any day of the week, and we see so many folks who are unhoused that we begin to think that there's nothing that we can do to help. Some Christians have internalized this helplessness in such a deep way that they've actually made it part of their theological worldview. There's a, a line from, one of Matthew, from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, you may know it. Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. And there are a ton of folks, a ton of Christian folk out there, followers of Jesus, who I guess haven't read the rest of Matthew, right? But they take that line to mean there's nothing we can do about poverty because it's just inevitable. 
like the sun or the moon, like it's just natural. The poor will always be with you. My friend and seminary classmate Liz Theo Harris, who is now the co-coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, she actually wrote her entire New Testament dissertation on this very text, and I'm going to summarize it for you in one sentence. Sorry, Liz. I know you want people to read your book. But Liz was so sick and tired of people invoking this as a lame excuse for inaction. She said, Jesus says the poor will always be with you because Christians are always taking care of people who are poor. It's as simple as that. It's not that it's somehow natural or inevitable. The poor are always with us because we're the ones who care. Amen. All right, enough of the what shouldn't I do. You get it. You want to know what should you do, right? Let me offer a few suggestions today. First of all, Treat everyone like a beloved child of God. Amen? Everyone. They are a beloved child of God. Look at people with love in your eyes. Say hello. Give them, uh, 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 give them the, the, the benefit of your respect, of your kindness. Even if you say, sorry, I can't share anything with you today, you can always give respect and an unconditional positive regard. That's number one. Number two. Go ahead and acknowledge that this is an inconvenience and then thank God for the gift of this inconvenience, right? Because God is doing something in this relationship. God has brought the two of you together, I think. You might even stop and say, all right, well, if I'm going to be inconvenienced, I'm going to be really inconvenienced. I'm going to take a couple minutes, maybe 30 minutes. I'm going to take some time because I want to see what God is doing. I'm going to get to know this person on a personal level. That's the hard thing, right? giving the time. Ask them about themselves. Have them tell you their story. Where are you from? Where do you sleep at night? How do you get enough to eat? You'll learn a lot. But more than learning, you're creating a relationship that is based on dignity, which is good for you and it's good for them. So acknowledge you're being inconvenienced and then take some time to get to know them if you can. Number three, something you can do always, give them money. Now I know, I know people hate to give money. And I'm not gonna say you shouldn't give to DEEM and DCM and give to all the organizations. You should absolutely write big checks to those organizations, but I think you should also give people money directly. I know we don't wanna do that because we think they're just gonna go use it to get drunk. I give away a lot of money to people I meet on the street. Why? Well, number one, because people need money, right? They're, they're homeless because they don't have any money, right? And so what they need is money. So I, I like to give people money. I, I don't know what they're going to use it for, but I know in 100% of those situations that the $1 or $2 or $5 or $10 that I give them is worth more to them than it is to me in that moment. But even if you don't want to give money, give them something else. Carry granola bars in your bag or carry an extra banana when you go out the door. Put water in your car or carry an extra toothbrush and toothpaste or tampons, right? Carry something that you can give to someone that they need. Buy Walmart cards and put them in your wallet so people can get a new pair of underwear. Go buy them lunch. Do something. I decided a long time ago that the cost of walking away, 
the cost of closing off my life, the cost of ignoring the moral claim that this person has on my life, that cost was in the, in the end much more than the risk that they might go and buy a beer to numb the pain of being unhoused. Do you hear me on that? So consider that for yourself. The most important thing that you can do, of all the things that you can do when someone asks you for money, is let it be the foundation for an ongoing relationship. Let that initial question spur you into a deeper connection with that individual. Look for the person again. Like I said, take them out to lunch. Listen to their story. They have so much to teach you about life. They know all of the ways that the social safety net around us breaks down. And this is where you're going to hear the personal stories that underscore our larger social struggles about where our public policy fails to be moral. You will hear people tell you about their health problems in excruciating detail, how they couldn't get treatment, Two-thirds of the folks who are homeless have chronic health conditions that they were unable to treat. That's why we fight for access to universal health care, right? Especially for mental health care. Affordable health care is a foundation for keeping people in their homes. Almost always when you talk to people who are unhoused, you will hear a story of trauma. These are the hardest stories of all to hear. Four out of five folks who are unhoused have experienced abuse in some form or another. And their stories, if you have the patience and the courage to listen, are powerful. Almost always people who are unhoused are in desperate need of therapeutic opportunities to process what is often deep trauma and loss. And then finally what you will hear if you take time to listen and take time to get to know their story, is how hard it is to find affordable housing. I just do not think that most of us living in the world today who can afford housing understand how expensive housing really is and how little of it that there is if you're not making much money. I'm going to throw a few statistics out there for you, and I don't want your eyes and your ears to glaze over, so listen to them. There is no state, county, or city in the United States, zero, none, where a full-time minimum wage worker working 40 hours a week can afford a two-bedroom apartment, right? So listen to that. Like, you can be working full-time, and in no state or city or county in this country if you're making minimum wage, can you afford a two-bedroom apartment? That's true. Another way of saying that, it takes $20.40 an hour to afford a one-bedroom apartment in the average community in this country. You have to work three jobs at minimum wage to be able to afford the average apartment. You all have heard me talk about affordable housing again and again and how important it is, how foundational it is to healthy individuals and communities. We've got a new development going up down the street, the North DeKalb Mall. Are you paying attention to that? How many of you are excited the North DeKalb Mall is getting redeveloped? Nobody? Come on now. <laughs> I'm excited the North DeKalb Mall is getting redeveloped. 
They're going to build 1,700 new apartments at the North DeKalb Mall. Isn't that exciting? How many of them are going to be affordable? 15. 15 out of 1,700. That's the, what the developer is offering as a gift to the community. Right? So this is, you see, right? This is where uh, our whole culture has gotten off balance. We're not allowing people to live in our communities. It is unaffordable to get housing. And once you lose your housing, it's so hard to get it back. Once you get an eviction on your record, it's that much harder. It becomes harder to earn enough to make a security deposit. And the first month's rent, you end up in the spiral of $350 a week extended stay motels, which is far more money than you'd have to spend in rent. But you can never make enough to get out of the hole. And eventually you end up sleeping in your car if you're lucky enough to have a car. I say all this because when I encourage you all to get into public policy as, as an expression of your faith, and when I tell you we're down at the state capitol working on changing Georgia's eviction laws, this is why it matters. Because the laws that we have on the books and the way we do development in our county and our state is unjust. And it causes people to lose their homes. Here's the last thing I want to say to you this morning. You've been great to listen. I believe that every time we encounter someone who is unhoused or someone who asks us for change, that encounter is a gift from God. You are given the opportunity in that moment to open a relationship with one of God's beloved children. And in the vast majority of cases, the thing that that person needs, apart from money, is more caring relationships. You can be part of mending their life again. It doesn't mean you're responsible for fixing what's broken. Healthy boundaries are part of every loving relationship you can be part of mending their life back together. Jesus gives outlandish instructions to those who would follow him. Amen? They're totally unreasonable. Why? Why does he ask you to give to everyone who asks? Why does he expect you to go the second mile? Why does Jesus expect you to love your enemies? Jesus came among us not to make sure that everyone abides by the rules of success and failure defined by capitalism. Jesus came to gather us as one body. We are knit together by God in such a way that there will always be greater or lesser members of this body, but Jesus' intention is that the lesser members are clothed with the greater honor and when one person suffers, you suffer with them. When one person is healed, the body is healed with them. Can you afford to spare some change? Thanks be to God, we can. Let the church say amen.